from the corner of 16th and Peachtree Street, right next to the High Museum of Art in Midtown Atlanta. Welcome to the First Presbyterian Church. I'm Senior Pastor Tony Sundermeyer, and I want to thank you for tuning in to today's broadcast. And I would invite you now to join us in the worship of God. Good morning. My name is Katharina Ernest, and I'm an elder currently serving on session right here at First Press. Please join me in the call to worship. Come, gather around. Jesus is here. Come, gather around, see the power of the Christ before you. With joy, we praise our God. turn with me in your pew Bible to Psalm 93, which can be found on page 519 in the Old Testament. Listen for and hear the word of God. The Lord is king, he is robed in majesty. The Lord is robed, he is girded with strength. He has established the world, it shall never be moved. Your throne is established from of old, you are from everlasting. The floods have lifted up, O Lord, the floods have lifted up their voice. The floods lift up their roaring. More majestic than the thunders of mighty waters, more majestic than the waves of the sea, majestic on high is the Lord. Your decrees are very sure. Holiness befits your house, O Lord, forevermore. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Our reading continues in the book according to Acts, Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. It can be found on page 110 of the New Testament. Let us listen now for God's continued word to us. In the first book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus did and taught from the beginning until the day when he was taken up to heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. After his suffering, he presented himself alive to them by many convincing proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. While staying with them, he ordered them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait there for the promise of the Father. This, he said, is what you have heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, is this the time when you will restore the kingdom of, to Israel? He replied, it is not for you to know the times or periods that the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, 
and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. When he had said this, as they were watching, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. While he was going, and they were gazing up toward heaven, suddenly two men in white robes stood by them. They said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking up toward heaven? This Jesus, who has been taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. This too is the word of the Lord. Would you join me in prayer? Lord, break open your word afresh to us this day so that we would be different people than those who came into this sacred space this morning, uh, even to be more like your son, Jesus the Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Well, there's a popular story in the Hebrew Bible that runs parallel with the text that we heard read by Connie from the hand of Luke in this first chapter of the book of Acts. The story is contained in 2 Kings chapter 2. One of its central characters is the prophet Elijah. That prophet was prophesying in the northern kingdom of Israel during the 9th century BCE during the reign of King Ahab. And that little text that I'm going to read in just a moment, this little text uh, is a point of transition for the prophet Elijah as he is sharing his final moments with his protege and his successor, a man by the name of Elisha. Okay? Elijah is the mentor. Elisha is the mentee. Now, Elisha was attached to the prophet from the time they first met, and he was being prepared by his mentor to pick up his mantle and to continue the prophetic work of God. Here is a portion of that text from 2 Kings. You'll most certainly hear the parallel between this narrative and the narrative in Acts chapter 1. Elijah said to Elisha, tell me what I may do for you before I'm taken from you. Elisha said, please let me inherit a double share of your spirit. He responded, you have asked a hard thing, yet if you see me as I am being taken from you, it will be granted you. If not, it will not. As they continued walking and talking, a chariot of fire and horses of fire separated the two of them, and Elijah ascended in a whirlwind into heaven. You see the parallel? He ascended in a whirlwind into heaven. Now, a Jew in the first century reading or hearing Luke's account of Jesus' ascension into heaven would make an immediate link to the Elijah-Elisha story. The intention Luke has in making this connection in his own narrative is quite purposeful. He's trying to communicate 
something about Jesus. He's, he's trying to, to, to frame the ministry and the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus in a very particular way. He's saying this Jesus, like Elijah, is a prophet who avoids death. For Jesus, it's a, it's a second death. Who avoids death and who is brought into heaven in this miraculous way and now dwells in unity with God. Heaven being the place where God was enthroned. This Jesus has a special relationship with God. He shares in unity with God in the very home of God. By, Jesus, by saying, rather, that Jesus ascended into heaven, Luke is saying that Jesus now shares in unity for all time for all eternity, with the Creator God. And so for the people of the first century, hearing this, they, they would immediately recognize the importance of this ascension because there could be no higher form of existence for them, no higher state of being than to be unified with God in heaven. The reception of such a destiny validates both Elijah and Jesus' ministry as a remarkably faithful one. Both Elijah and Jesus have been set apart, and now their ministries have been validated in their ascension, in their unity with God. Before we press on in the Acts 1 text, let me say one more thing about 2 Kings. For Elisha... For Elisha, Elijah was more than just a prophet to him. He was more than just a prophet. He was like a father to him. The request that you heard him make in this text, that Elijah desires, Elisha desires rather, a double share of his spirit. Did you hear that request? I want a double share of your spirit, he asks, and he is framing his relationship with this request. He is framing it with the prophet Elijah in a way beyond just a mentor. He's framing it in familial terms. You see, when a father passed on his inheritance, the eldest son would receive a double portion of that inheritance compared to his other male Siblings, for Elisha to ask Elijah for a double share of his spirit is like him saying, You are a father to me. You're a father to me. Treat me as your beloved son. Pass on to me not your material possessions, but pass on to me your, your spiritual and your prophetic legacy. Pass on to me the power of God so that I too may be a witness. While the parallel between Luke 1 and 2 Kings 2 is obvious as it relates to both of these prophets, Jesus and Elijah, they both ascend into heaven as a symbol of their unity with God and as validation of their ministry. What might not be so obvious is the parallel that runs between these two as it relates to the passing on of a spiritual and prophetic legacy. It's not just the parallel of ascension, it's also the parallel of what happens when someone is next in line. What happens when that spiritual and prophetic legacy needs to be passed on? Because in the book of Acts, chapter 1, we see it quite plainly. The apostles are playing the role of Elisha. 
They're playing that role of mentee. This is their coming-of-age moment. This is their coming-of-age moment as their mentor, their teacher, their friend, their brother, their Lord and their Savior now takes his leave. As Jesus ascends to God, Luke tells us the disciples were, were staring up into the heavens when all of a sudden two men in white robes appear and they ask, why are you standing there staring up into heaven? I've always interpreted this line through the lens of that well-traveled maxim, don't be so heavenly-minded that you're no earthly good. I've always interpreted this scene through that lens. The disciples of Jesus now have a spiritual and prophetic legacy to continue. There's no time for stargazing. There's no time to stand around. There's no time to, to look up into the heavens because now is the time they have to go. Now is the time they have to move. Now is the time they have to wait for the Holy Spirit so that they may be faithful witnesses of Christ even to the ends of the earth. This call, I imagine, as it falls fresh on the ears of the disciples, is at once both invigorating and yet at the same time absolutely terrifying. It is possible that this coming-of-age moment is a sort of crisis for Jesus' followers. It's a crisis, maybe, because now is the time. Now the stage is set for them to act, and even as they're invited to wait for the Holy Spirit who will bring them both the presence and power of God, might they still be wondering, can we do it without Jesus? Can we carry on without our friend, without our brother, without our Lord, as they wait in Jerusalem, might they be wondering, will the Holy Spirit be enough? May the Holy Spirit be enough for us to press on, to continue in this long obedience in the same direction. Many of us know or have known that kind of crisis, haven't we? The high school graduate or college graduate wonders if they're ready to take the next step as they leave behind family and friends and walk into an exciting but unknown future. A loved one has died and we ask, can we make it without them? A mentor or a trusted friend is no longer a part of our life. We've lost a job or even a career. Maybe we've lost a home. Maybe we've lost life as we have experienced it. Maybe we have lost an expectation because life hasn't turned out the way we thought it would. The moment of crisis hits. Can I carry on? Can I do it? In the midst of the void that has been left by this person, or by this identity that is no longer, or by this expectation or this experience, do I have enough to be faithful? Am I enough to be faithful? 
As this Ascension Sunday happens to land on Mother's Day, and as I was contemplating this idea of Elisha and the disciples coming of age, as they were called to press on in the physical absence of their leader, I have thought a lot about mothers and the profound impact they make on who we become as adults. As these ideas collided this week, I began to think about attachment theory. The pioneers of this theory were 20th century English psychiatrist John Bowlby and American psychologist Mary Ainsworth. And what they basically argued was that the relationship infants have with their primary caregiver, principally the mother, without a doubt dictates and shapes and determines the emotional and relational health that child will have as an adult. Our feelings of security, our feelings of safety and love and acceptance and emotional stability originate or do not originate out of that principle and primary bond, that one that begins with the mother and continues on with the father or another parent or other caregivers that come in that child's life. Psychologists Gene Siegel and Jalen Jaffe neatly summarize the difference between healthy attachment and unhealthy attachment. They say when a mother or parent is tuned into the child's needs, when that mother or parent is responsive to them with care and with, with love, that child grows into adulthood with a greater aptitude to foster meaningful and healthy relationships. They have a greater aptitude to develop empathy. They have a greater aptitude to establish healthy boundaries. On the contrary, when a mother or a parent is unavailable or rejects the child, the child might become critical, emotionally immature, and distant in their adult relationships. When a mother or a parent is ambivalent or is ignorant to the child's needs or is extremely unattached, the child will have a harder time making positive relationships or, or even seeing themselves as worth loving. And that belief can lead and often does lead to abusive or unhealthy or destructive patterns of relating. Here's the connection I'm trying to make. A mother, a father, a parent, a caregiver that creates a secure attachment with the child gives that child everything that they need to become a healthy adult. They have everything that they need. When that attachment is secure, they have everything that they need to become a healthy high-functioning adult. And here's the most important bit about this. Even when that parent is no longer physically present, when that mother or that father, that caregiver loves and nurtures and creates a secure attachment for that child, even when that caregiver is no longer present, they have the skills to become a healthy adult. The parent may be out of sight, but they are not gone. Their love and nurture and health carries on in the life of the child as the child begins to love and nurture and makes decisions that promote emotional, spiritual, and physical health. In a similar way, Jesus is like a mother. Jesus is like a mother. When he called his 
disciples to follow, they were spiritual infants. They were just babies. And like a good parent, he nurtured them and he loved them and he taught them. He was attentive to their needs. He, He set boundaries for them. He forgave them and gave them the tools that they needed to be fully human and fully alive to God as his witnesses in the world. Notice the language Luke employs in the first chapter, the ninth verse. A cloud, he writes, took Jesus away out of their sight. The new reality for the disciples that marked their maturity and their their coming of age is that while Jesus was now out of sight, he was by no means gone. This is a deep and profound theological truth that we cling to. Even though Jesus is out of sight, he is by no means gone. He would be and will be present by the power of the Holy Spirit and known in the very legacy and witness of his followers. Friends, Jesus may be out of sight, but he is not gone. His presence and power are with us in the gift of the Holy Spirit, a gift that we will celebrate in full measure next week. He may be out of sight, but he is not gone. For what he has given us in his nurture and love and forgiveness and call is exactly what we need to be the church today. What he's given us is exactly what we need to face what we need to face to take the next steps into an unknown future, to actually live the life God has created and destined for us to live. Friends, we may even now individually be facing a moment of crisis. We may be facing a void. We may be facing a coming-of-age moment, and we may be wondering if we can press on in that void. We may be wondering if we have what it takes to continue on, even in the midst of that void. We wonder if we have enough. We wonder if we are enough. Truth be told, we do and we are because God was and is and will be forevermore. For when we are securely attached to Jesus, even if he is out of sight, but not gone, and if we wait on the power of his Holy Spirit, we have exactly what we need to be his witnesses, to be faithful, and to do exactly what he is calling us to do for the sake of the gospel and the sake of the world. Amen.
Jesus may be out of sight, but he is certainly not gone. His presence is with us through his nurture and his grace and love for us. And now we're called, even in the midst of the voids of our lives, uh, to press on because we have exactly what we need by his grace to take that next step, to be faithful witnesses in all ways and in all capacities. And so for that journey ahead, may the peace of Christ, which goes beyond all understanding, guard your hearts and your minds in him. May his peace live inside of you this day and every day.